Hey, this is Tony, and you're listening to the Axis Pod. On this week's episode, after a bit of a hiatus, Christy and I are talking to Nathaniel Carroll, the brains and brawn behind the band NC and the Party Line. Uh, we cover a lot of ground in this episode, uh, including Nathaniel's new album, Panic Pandemic, uh, as well as his trajectory as a musician. Uh, and uh, his experience with Axis. Uh, it was a good conversation. It's the first one where we're incorporating legit music into the episode. Uh, so let's get after it. Here's Nathaniel. Nathaniel, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. Of course. And Christy, thank you for being here. Hey, my pleasure. Nathaniel, you've got an album. Got an album. Yeah, I made it in my basement. And you made it, I guess, in the course of the COVID era, right? Yeah. So there were bits and pieces that show up uh, from my past, but the the whole project I started and finished in sort of first wave of quarantine, feeling both like I now have extra time on my hands since I'm not out and about and also like this may be the last time on our hands to do creative things and so the existential <laughs> crisis sort of fueled my energy and uh and i was able to put together a little five song rock record we were happy to have you in so you did two cohorts this year you did august and then october right yeah i think most of our podcast interviews are going to involve people who've done more cohorts but you made this really cool thing and we think you're going to be around you're going to keep coming around so we're we're hyped up to talk about this and you and I met in like 2015 in a lawyering context that's right but I, I want to launch into it from your musical background is I know that you were a musician 20 years ago or whatever in bands my hunch or my impression is that there's been a gap between the last music you put out and this one. Yeah. So both my parents were pastors and, and around age five, the story goes that we had a little toy piano and I would come pick out the hymns by ear after church. And so um, at age eight, mom signed me up for piano lessons. And I was just realizing the other day that I was sandwiched between two very talented young women named Marianne and Sheena in my uh, piano lesson schedule. And mom would get there early. So we'd hear Marianne. And then I would go and embarrass myself. And Sheena's mom brought her early to, to show how embarrassing it would be if she didn't practice. So, <laughs> um, but I, I stuck with it. I'm really grateful to my folks for supporting that. And then around age 18, I started writing and recording my own music. But at the time, I didn't know how to do a good job recording. So I had to rely on studio time. I had a really great, great friend named Brian Edwards and his dad owned a studio in Max Creek, Missouri. I grew up in Camdenton, which is Lake of the Ozarks. So we would record there. I had no idea what I was doing, but we made it happen. And, and someday I will re-release those ancient recordings. During college, I then toured and performed every chance I got on weekends, spring breaks, summer. Uh, back then you could use MySpace and reach out to a band in another city and they'd help you book a show. I don't know how it's done now, even pre-COVID. Uh, <laughs> were, you, were you touring as yourself or in a band? 
Yeah, so most of the time I toured as myself, just Nathaniel Carroll. Um, if I brought anyone along with me, I would bill it as Nathaniel Carroll and the party line. Uh, and so it was always kind of a rotating cast of characters, but it, it always felt weird to just promote my own name, um, but it, it kind of stuck. And so I was wondering about that is the album American Covidiot, a very political album. And I thought that the name NC in the party line was a political name. Is that wrong? It's it's not wrong and it's it's not complete. I really like uh, puns and wordplay. I always have. I ended up with an English degree. I don't know that that help you know makes makes me an authority or anything. But I and now as a dad, I make a lot of dad jokes. So it's basically it changes over time. Initially, it was about fun and having a party with friends and the idea uh, the old old style telephone party lines in the seventies. Gotcha. Everybody just, you know, on a Friday night, you jump on and talk to a bunch of people. When I was in middle school, I was allowed to use the phone <laughs> at home and some friends had three-way calling. And so part of it is that feeling of just getting together with a few people and seeing what happens. But yes, it is also, I, I realized at the time and still that that, that is a, 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 has political connotations. I also learned that it maybe is a reference to illicit drugs. I did not know that. <laughs> Oh, is it? Oh, yeah. I guess I could see that. that is not, that's the one meaning I did not intend and do not endorse. So, <laughs> When you were touring before, was it, um, was it something you did in your free time or did you like take time? Like, were you, was that your full-time gig? Well, it shouldn't have been my full-time gig because it didn't make full-time money. Uh, <laughs> but I did spend a lot of time with it. So during college is really when I became pretty active. Um, I was working all the time. Sometimes I, for a while I was working as a, a youth intern at a church <laughs> and then playing piano in churches. Um, Christy had that gig too. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great, great gig because there aren't, many concert venues that want people to come play music on the weekends in the morning and that, that will... <laughs> this is true and getting paid to play music is nice no matter how you slice it right but uh i quickly learned that it's it was not a career once once i started making the music it felt silly not to share it and so my goal was always just to try to share the music with as many people as possible because i could make connections that way my favorite thing about touring was going to a new city and making a friend or multiple friends within an evening. Uh, you know, people would put me up in their house or they'd come and stay and we'd drink coffee late into the night. And it was really special to connect with new people. And I, I'm still in touch with people that I met one or two times on tour that have, they're interested in the music. We follow each other on, on Facebook for what that's worth. So yeah, it's more of a cathartic, therapeutic sort of outlet for a, an extrovert. Right on. I'm going to take this opportunity to introduce the first ever break in a in an Access podcast <laughs> to play one of the tracks. We're not going to like sell a mattress or something? Not yet. Panic pandemic, I'm hiding in the basement, lock down the outbreak of drunk and
So where did this project this year come from then? We talked about a gap earlier and I think it's maybe this is what, what uh, maybe how it ties in. So I recorded, I started recording music the first time around in a really big transition time in my life. My dad was diagnosed with Lou Gehrig's disease, ALS, in about 2016, 2017. And uh, he passed away in uh, April of 2018. And around that time, that's when I started, I went to college, started making my own music, writing about sappy love songs. And then a lot of songs processing, like having family members dying. And so it was a really creative moment. I had a lot of emotions and feelings to deal with and, and things to think about. I didn't know the benefits of therapy at the time. And so that was how I dealt with it. At some point before my kids were born, this would have been in 2007 or so, um, I kind of took a break and I think I ended up selling some instruments, you know, just to get by doing, trying to figure out my place in the world and then just kind of lost, lost the habits. I forgot that I had the creative muscles. About six months before the pandemic hit, I'd started recording uh, again and sort of trying to build a small cheap home studio. And that's when I started to realize like, oh, I think I can do this again. And so the first song, this Panic Pandemic song, uh, it was the first song I wrote for this record. They're all in chronological order. Um, and it's kind of meant to be an audio diary. And so the first one was to capture that first initial wave when we're all, <laughs> we're all scared. We're all wondering what's life gonna look like. Uh, we're spending a lot of time in our homes, in my case, the basement. Um, and so like there, there's definitely a literal theme in the lyrics and then figurative because as coronavirus started spreading, we also saw a lot of other problems in our society being illuminated and, and breaking that inspired the song. When I was listening to, to the tracks um, preparing for this conversation, it really, it really struck me how well it like captured the energy of this time period. And, and absolutely like the first track is um, it's so like angsty, which is really appropriate for, especially that, that first, that first month I'd say of, of the pandemic when we were all like, maybe under the mistaken impression that this would all be over in a couple of weeks and, but just trying to figure out which way was up, what we need to do, trying to convince baby boomers to stay home, which is a lot harder than it should be. And yeah, it seems like as, as the tracks progressed, kind of that, that angst or that, yeah, that really like anxious energy kind of gave way to some more almost like mournful themes in there that like kind of feeling the, the depth of how fucked up everything is right now. Uh, yeah, I think you, I think you you hit something that I was hoping that people would hear, which is that this timeline uh, that we're in feels manic at times, and it feels scary. Paranoia sets in. I mean, we're basically sitting in our own thoughts, and even even if we're out wearing masks, uh, even for people who are working at the grocery store and risking their lives just because they have no other option, uh, and risking their lives because they want to help other people even those folks aren't connecting the same way we used to. No one's touching. We don't see people's smiles and faces and have conversations in the same way. And so it really is like this almost neurosis that happens when you're isolated. And that builds and builds and gets weirder and more eccentric. And so after I'd written the sort of guts of the song, I didn't know, I didn't know at the time that I was going to make like a coronavirus record or a pandemic quarantine type record. But as I started writing that song, I was like, if I'm going to do this, I need to try my hardest not to, to be respectful of that there's not only just like 
the funny or like sort of dramatic parts, but there's also some really sensitive, painful parts. The whole album is supposed to feel like a timeline of, of that, that cycle of being in the pandemic. And so we go from panic pandemic. The second song is called A Little Bit Accurate. It's, it's kind of about, it's about a lot of things. It's about Trump, obviously. There's a line in there, spray tan human dumpster fire. So I, I don't know how, without alienating everyone, I think we can all agree that, that those four words have <laughs> at some point in this, uh, this year described I, what's going on. I don't know how many fervent Trump supporters we can count among our listening audience, but I'm, I'm assuming you just lost however many we had. <laughs> it's also meant to be a little bit vague because it's not just about Trump. It's about white privilege and about how we are all, we all have a little bit of that mindset of, of acting out of fear of what's different from us. And so there's a line in the, the bridge that says, I see him in, in you and I see him in me too. And it scares me. When I, when I wrote that, I was like, no, no, I'm not going to do that. Cause I don't want people to think that I'm a Trump supporter. And then I realized like, well, you know what? Like I'm not, but I, I am in this class of privileged people and we all need to be talking about ourselves and about our responsibilities. And so it's, it's like a fun, I, I wanted to make a song that sounded a little, or that felt like a, like a protest. I started writing the lyrics to this in June and July. This one didn't, I, I didn't finish it as, as quickly as Panic Pandemic. And then we had George Floyd was killed. Uh, Catherine, my partner and I went out to protests in the pandemic. Everyone was wearing masks. It was like this weird, it felt like a weird safe space <laughs> in many ways, even in the midst of all of it. And there were people handing out water and food and being really supportive of each other to speak out against police violence. And I was like, this is amazing. Uh, this is the feeling that I think a lot of people, like it, it feels like the right time for a lot of people who are now, they've been inside, they've been alone, they've been sort of watching everything from afar. Like if they could come out and feel this feeling, they would feel uh, inclined to change too. So then obvious uh, is about defunding the police uh, <laughs> and about how we're all born under that same, the, the shade of that, poisonous tree um you know we talk about there's bad apples in the police force that's like a common theme and so i was playing with that thinking like well bad apples but what if the whole tree's rotten you know that's that's i'm not i'm not the first person to think that but that's kind of what uh what that song turned out to be mm. um, it used to be that was one song where i had i had the guitar part the sort of main uh riff and i had the that line am i so obvious everyone i'm around thinks it or knows when I try to smile, it always turns upside down. The rest of the song that I'd, writ I'd written some like trash lyrics back in like 2005. Um, it was like, just like a sappy breakup, angry song. <laughs> I was embarrassed of it. So it was, that was a chance to sort of revive it and make it more meaningful. And then Wheeze, it, it's sort of a placeholder. I made, I, I wanted to capture what it felt like and sounded like to get the virus. Um, but but also just constantly feeling like, do I have the virus? You know, <laughs> every cough, every every upset stomach. I'm just like, is, is this a symptom of coronavirus? I mean, I don't know how many times I Googled that. I recorded that song and my, my intention was to write lyrics over it. And I started to and I have some. I haven't gotten it yet. I don't th think it was fair to write a song about having, you know, what it feels like if I haven't felt it. So, yeah. so it's a sort of like instrumental 
interlude, a, a place for your brain to sort of just like <laughs> process first three songs. And then it sort of ends and, and calms out. And on the one hand, the calming uh, vibe of the last track is supposed to be sort of like when the pandemic's over. But on the other hand, um, it could be a, a piece that one feels when when the virus has won. I don't know. <laughs> so yeah, the, the whole thing was meant to be enjoyed straight through. I've recorded sort of an Easter egg version of the last track that loops right back into Panic Pandemic. So if you want, just like the coronavirus continues, and <laughs> you may use this to loop increments of time in your own day. <laughs> you go back through the stages of grief all over again. <laughs> um, I wanted to talk a little bit about your process as a musician so you you play piano guitar a little bit of bass drums and do vocals on this right you had you know a few of the tracks feature other humans so you Mm -hmm. had a you had a little bit of help oh yeah i had had a, a, a great deal of help from really great friends um i'm in another band called right team with um, a friend named Nathan Wall and another named Jeff Green. They're both from Springfield where I went to college. And we were, we were pals back then, but weren't in any groups. And so we had been, been a band for a couple of years here in St. Louis, where we all live now. So Jeff and Nathan, I would record my guitar part or piano part and some scratch vocals and the drums. I'd send it to them and let them just kind of stew over it. And I'd say, record a couple ideas on top and send it back to me. And so typically I just take whatever the first ideas were that Nathan or Jeff came up with because they were awesome and different and creative. And, and so, so yeah, they would send me tracks back. Um, and then I also reconnected with, uh, with some friends just because of the pandemic. I mean, every, we are all sort of like back online. And uh, so Logan Williams is on the track called Wheeze. It's the fourth track. Logan is a dear friend from uh, childhood. And we were in, I was in my first band with Logan. It was called Fatherton. We played like, you know, the high school talent show and local gigs in Camdenton, Missouri. We'd rent out the Lions Club or the Elks Lodge. Amazing. This hall. (laughs) And uh, just do DIY shows, invite, you know, try to get our friends to come out and give us five bucks a head to come in the door and uh, watch us practice, basically. So. With Christmas lights everywhere, just like I've got here in my studio still. So I, I reconnected with Logan and asked him to put guitar on. And so if you're listening with headphones, he's on the left side. Um, and that song's also meant to feel really raw, like it's in a practice space, because it is. I've always released music that has a bunch of mistakes in it, um, or little, little things that I hear, maybe other people don't. And part of it always felt like a sense of urgency, like, well, I, I got to get this out. So this time around, I really, I, it's my first time recording a real, a, what I would call a real record, uh, like a full band record by myself, um, at least as far as the day-to-day engineering goes. So I, I was learning as I was going. It was very difficult to figure it out as a 35-year-old, <laughs> I'm finding, rather than if I had stuck with it around, you know, age 20 or 20, 21 or something. So Logan laid down the guitar and then Catherine, my partner, plays a flute part at the beginning of COVID at the closing track. There's definitely a garage band quality to it. And I mean that in a, in a really positive endearing way that 
there's there's a way this turns out where it just sounds amateurish and and not good yeah you know? but like this comes out in this kind of really raw authentic way but at the same time it it comes across as you know what you're doing you know how to play you know how to sing what it kind of accidentally started working out too is that so the third track obvious uh claudio rivera plays drums on it he's a friend that i met uh when i in that first round of playing music when i was a touring musician he was in a band called somerset based in minneapolis and i went and played a show with them and hung out at this cool like feminist vegan uh, women's shelter where the, the concert was and we made wait you know some weird i think it was the first time i tried that saitan fake protein stuff or, or stuff. um but he and I just stayed in touch. We, we connected. He's a really, uh, really great person. Um, and he went on to play drums for Motion City Soundtrack and saves the day and is like a, was it before the pandemic, was like a professional um, guitar and drum tech for a bunch of like touring rock bands. And he had put a video about a year ago on Facebook of him just drumming in his practice space. It's like, oh, I should see if he would put something down on this. So at the time I had a demo of Obvious with with bad lyrics or stupid lyrics i sent it to him and asked him just to record make the drums sound good and he did so if if you notice that the drums are awesome on the third track it's because it's not me <laughs> right on that, that track ends up sounding the most polished the pandemic and recording process and the fatigue started to set in and that's where access actually came in uh, into play is that if i had the first three tracks just sort of like demos with some rough stuff in them and then didn't know how the record was going to end. And so I set out in that first cohort to try to finish two songs. I think that was my goal. And then the second time around, it was like, okay, now figure out how to like make an album and, and get it mixed and mastered and figure out a marketing plan or like a way to release it. Cause I didn't even know how to get music out there anymore. I used to sell CDs at live shows. People don't buy CDs now, maybe. I wanted to, to reveal that you can make things, you can share things with people. They don't have to be polished and perfect. Um, so I've learned since releasing the record that the streaming world is very competitive. Uh, and there are tons of like 15 year old through 20 something year old, just making really great music in their bedrooms. That sounds like it's from a professional studio. Yeah. And, uh, it's, it's not the same. It's, they've all got, what I call emulated instruments, like drum kits that are, you know, uh, excuse me, drum machines and samplers. I didn't use, I don't know how to use any of that stuff. So like, I was like, well, I guess I got to make, I got to record it all and do it the old fashioned way. So I've made a dad rock album. It, <laughs> sounds, it sounds like dad recorded it in the basement because that's what dad did late at night. <laughs> the kids were up on the, you know, two floors above sleeping, hopefully. I could see dad rock becoming a thing. Oh my gosh, yes. Yeah. I, I jokingly would say it's for fans of Eddie Van Heusen. Um, and that was before Eddie Van Halen passed away. So this had been a good chance for me also just to like go listen to other great dads of rock and uh, take well, note. That was one thing I wanted to touch on with you was what you hear as the influences that are coming through in this without getting too like inside baseball. Like the things I was hearing coming through or that it was evoking from me, there are a few things that come to mind from 10, 15, even 20 years ago. 
I, I know I told you Jimmy Eat World is is one of the bands that that I hear in this thing. Um, I think I mentioned Semisonic from like from like yeah. their first album, and then another one that came to mind. I don't even know if Alkaline Trio is like, oh, yeah. like punk rock, like garage band out of I think they're out of Aurora or like Chicago area. You made this thing in 2020 as timely as things get, right? Because you're writing about a specific moment in time thematically. Musically, it took me back to a, an earlier version of myself. And I, I'm wondering if, if that resonates with you. And I, I'm assuming it wasn't intentional. It's just the music you make. But I'm interested in your thoughts on that. Definitely resonates. And for the listeners at, at home, Tony scored a two out of three on the on the influences. I did not know <laughs> Sonic had a robust catalog of listenable music outside of closing time. Uh, Alkaline Trio, my, my roommate in freshman year in college, uh, was one of my best friends growing up, played uh, Alkaline Trio albums and like Interpol records on repeat. And, but, uh, but Jimmy World, yeah. So like Bleed American came out right before, I believe, 9-11 happened. And I remember it was a hugely popular record. It's like the album of the summer. Everyone's listening to it. It, it, it like bridged the gap between all the like cool, quote unquote, cool rock and roll people who like liked emo music before it was all like screaming and sort of the My Chemical Romance vibe, the pop emo. Um, we're talking sad stuff like Dashboard Confessional era. And um, Hey Mercedes was a band that I really liked and their singer, Bob Nana, um, I got to meet him when I was playing solo music the first time around and we've, we've stayed in touch and he's been a good influence on that too. The last time I felt so angsty would have been as a teenager. Like <laughs> I, that was the last time that I really had this weird disrupted sleep and, and work and stay up and eat junk food kind of schedule. I, I feel like part of the sound that came through is just like me reverting back to that. When was the last time I felt like this? So I didn't set out thinking, I want to make a record that sounds like these bands. But pretty quickly, I was like, oh, this is awesome. This is music that I would have loved to hear when I was 18. Like that's uh-huh. basically it. <laughs> I've been thinking about it. So my, one of my best friend's older brother, so it was Adam and Aaron. And Aaron uh, ultimately became my uh, sort of closest friend. But Aaron, <laughs> he always had cool music. He was this Adam's older brother every Every week after church or every weekend, I'd go over to their their house and we'd always try to hear what Aaron was listening to in his bedroom or sneak in there when he wasn't home and try to burn his CDs. So I basically just made a record that like, well, I hope Aaron likes it. And he does. So that, that made me happy. But <laughs> it, was the, it was me just trying to make something that I'm proud of, also make something that my kids thought was cool. Do they? They do. They finally do. It, but not until I got on Spotify. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why. I, I guess that I made it. You're vetted. Yeah. <laughs> You're legit now. They can you find succeeded. you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I wanted to, to talk a little bit about Axis and your experience with it. As you hold the distinction, let's say, of being the worst about morning check-ins who also succeeds in Axis. And that, you know, we, we do the, the main calls, we do the morning calls. And what we've found with people is 
that if you don't come to the morning check-ins, it probably means you're not participating and you're also not doing your work. And I've been really interested in your experience. I, I mean, it's a scheduling thing, right? Is that like in both your cohorts, <clears throat> schedule just hasn't worked, but you've not only stuck in Axis, uh, you've actually found ways to really contribute and be a like a full member of the community regardless. So I wanted to to commend you on that and throw that out there as a as an interesting detail about kind of you as you relate to the community. There's a special plaque for you. It's the yeah. worst best access member ever. Yeah. That sounds like my college career um, and maybe to an even greater extent, just my whole person, which is I may not show up on time, but when I do, I will do the work, will care about it, and I will care about the other people that uh, were waiting for me when I was late. Yeah, so it was mostly a schedule thing. Um, the morning check-in video in a pandemic, I don't always, I mean, I quite literally say to my first album, I, I have not showered every day like I used to. <laughs> And so sometimes I don't feel like being on, on video, but most of it was like, I'm, I'm also starting to work at that same, same time in the morning. The first cohort, I think we were using WhatsApp. Um, and as a, a baby boomer, a, a, an early baby, I guess I'm not a boomer at all, but I feel Millennial. Like I'm approaching that. I'm approaching that, like that next stage where the cool young generations are going to think we're obnoxious or whatever. I think we're there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, so like what I couldn't quite figure out just how to use WhatsApp. When you guys relaunched Slack, uh, I was already on it for work. I had set one up with a friend just because we always shoot ideas off of each other uh, and kind of goof around. And I thought, what's well, better than text message? And so having the Slack check-in option was really great because then I felt like this is a solution for people like me. Like if, yeah. if that wasn't there, I probably would have, I probably would have been really discouraged and embarrassed to participate more fully in the other meetings that I was able to attend and, and like get excited about other people's work. So having different options for people who work different schedules, I think was really cool. The main factor here was accountability. I just, I now had people who had seen inside the process, were curious about it, asking questions and were like, when's it going to be done? You know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that felt good. I was like, now I know that I have like nine other people at least that if I release this, they'll hear it. I remember hearing Christy on your podcast episode, you talked about how like you wrote a book, you've written several books and like seven, you know, that seven or eight people have read this one book or 10 people or 15. And I was like, okay, that's cool. Like there's value in it, even if mm -hmm. it doesn't end up on the radio or, you know, New York times bestseller, that sort of thing. It's something we've talked about a lot that it, it feels like as a relative, like for me as a relatively new writer, um, a relatively new novelist, it feels like super intimidating to think about getting something published. But at the same time, even though I know that these first books that I'm writing are, um, you know, they're rough and I'm going to get better, but I'm not there yet, but I still want to be sharing it, which you mentioned something similar that it's like, even if what I'm producing isn't all that great, I still think that other people can benefit from it and, and enjoy it and that kind of thing. And so there's part of what, what we want to do is provide a space for people to be able to share with a smaller world, a subset of the world, like what they're producing and be able to be able to get it out there, even if it's not on the New York times bestseller list. Yeah. It was so cool. And like through that, I met 
people who uh, were making video games, for example. <laughs> and mm -hmm. we've now col are collaborating on a little companion video game uh, that we're working on called Covidiot Blaster. I think I showed some like little, little preview. Oh, that's amazing. Just, <laughs> Fantastic. Just watching Aaron demonstrate for the Axis group, like here's how I made an 8-bit or a sort of bitmap character or a pixelated character for an 8-bit video game. And here's how I make it move. And then here's the program that you run it in. Like just seeing him do that, I was like, oh, I can't do all of that, but I can do that little artwork stuff. And maybe maybe he'll let me adapt some of the the code that he used for this one element of his game. And so we got together and now, now we're making video games and that's fun. <laughs> and I'll probably try to make more. My thought is since bands can't do live shows anymore or musicians that they're looking for other ways to have people engage with, with their music. And it might be fun to make a little video game app or something for a small album where it's like a side scroller or an adventure game. And you have to, in order to hear all the music, you have to essentially play through the game and listen to it while you're going. So <laughs> if, it's awesome. hard, if it's too hard, people will just hear the first song over and over and then give up. So, <laughs> you know, so I don't know. I might, I might experiment with that. I'm, I'm realizing this time around that, that the music can just be like one component to use to connect with people um, who are also making stuff or feeling things. So now that you've made this album, are you going to make another one? Yeah. So I, as long as this sort of creative uh, juice is going, this time around, I've learned a lot about how to set up workflow so that even when I'm not feeling creative, I can make something like all, all of my equipment's plugged in now <laughs> and ready to go. I've learned that I can just record a few things, even if they're not perfect and build on it and then go back and fix it later. That was something that I didn't have the luxury of doing in other people's studios before. I have like a bunch of old songs that I started writing, that I finished writing, that I've even recorded poorly that um, have not been given proper releases. I mean, I, I, I listed them out last night. I have at least 52 older songs that are salvageable and then a bunch more that I don't think are, or that, you know, they're just not relevant. Um, and then I also heard a couple songs that like <laughs> eerily connect, hit on a lot of points that people are feeling about. Like I wrote a song imagining long distance relationships and just trying to write kind of a country song or a sort of love ballad about that. And it's about being distant from the people you care about. And so like, it's perfect for now. I'll probably release that pretty soon. I'm going to keep riding, riding the wave. So I've signed up for the next cohort. Yeah, yeah, we'll be there. So Nathaniel, where can people find you? People can find me on the internet at my website, ncpartyline.com. You can listen to the album for free there and read about the people that helped make it and the process a little bit of how it was made. And uh, I'm on all the streaming platforms, Spotify, Apple Music, iTunes. If you do nothing else and you're interested in hearing more music, go follow me on Spotify because that's where more music is going to keep coming from the past, from the future, um, and some other other projects too. Right on. Yeah, we'll definitely follow you on Spotify. Thanks so much, y'all. This was fun. Yeah. yeah. It's good learning more about what you're doing, Nathaniel. Yeah, and, and thanks for making a really cool group. I think maybe that's one thing I do want to add on there that I hope you, I hope people who hear this and people who are reading about Axis know that it's created a community and a way to connect with people on a more meaningful level than just clicking like and scrolling and you know retweeting. And I'm really grateful for that. So 
I appreciate not only the skills or tools that I'm acquiring in it, but the friendships and you guys are really great. So thank you. You're describing access as rehab for social media. That's been maybe my favorite way of hearing somebody describe it. So. it yeah, it really is. If, <laughs> yeah, keep, the, keep the slack going and the cohorts going. I'll do that. Good night. Thank you once again to Nathaniel Carroll for doing that episode with us. That was a lot of fun. Uh, you can find the album and see in the party line, Panic Pandemic, pretty much wherever you find music. Spotify, Apple Music. Um, it's really good. And thank you, Christy, as always, for doing the episode. Uh, housekeeping in terms of access. Uh, we are now setting up to take a small break i think it's only like two or three weeks between this cohort and when we start in may in may some things are going to be changing a little bit um, in a way that we think is going to allow for more creativity within the community may cohort is set to start may 1st as always you can email me at tony at access.work Thanks a lot for listening.